Amen. Well, today we are concluding a journey. We've been on a path called, What is the Gospel? And the Gospel, of course, is the message. It's the message, the good news, that God has sent His Son to die on the cross and be resurrected to redeem us from our sins for His own glory to be displayed to His creation. So it's the message of the good news of Christ. And we've been talking for the last couple of months of what exactly the gospel is and, and why it matters for our lives and does it really make a difference. And we've learned that the gospel is where you begin in Christ and where you continue in Christ. And one day we will end it with him in glory in heaven forever, all because of what he's done for us on the cross, because of his resurrection. We have the promises that are all yes in Christ. So we've been learning, well, how does this actually change our lives We've talked about many different topics. I've said it in the past, but if you ever miss a series, I'm sorry, a message in a series, you can go to the website and listen to that or download it so you're up to speed. But in this series, we've been talking about four words that describe the gospel. And so having reviewed in the last few weeks, and so we'll do it today. It's only four words, and it's simple. If you're talking about the gospel, we're in, the, we're in a church gathering and so what's the first place? Where are we going to start? What's number one? God. Oh, what a surprise. Of course. Number one is God. And who is God? The righteous creator, right? So the first word is God. Second word, man. Very good. So it begins with God, not with man. It begins with God, number one. Righteous creator, number two. Man, who is man? A condemned sinner. So God, man, was number three. Yes, Christ. You can say Jesus. That's okay. Yeah, Jesus. So God, man, Christ. And who is Christ? The glorious Redeemer. He paid the price. So God, man, Christ. Number four, response. That's right. These four words. And the response must be faith and repentance. Believing as evidenced by turning away from sin. Repentance. And so these are the four key words. God, man, Christ, response that in four words summarize what the gospel is. And these matter because this is how we accomplish the mission. What makes a church different from any other organization that is nonprofit, that is just seeking to do good things in the world? What makes us unique from other, quote, good or humanitarian organizations? This message. This message, the gospel message given to us Entrusted to the church is what makes us unique from any other good organization on the planet. This is God's design. And so our mission, which is gospel-centered, is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That's why we're here. And so my heartbeat, the heartbeat of the church leadership elders, and I know the heartbeat of the church as a whole, is for us to be healthy. As mentioned earlier, because a healthy church can then go forth and grow, and reach more people, and multiply, and, and further, and expand the borders of the kingdom. And the kingdom, we talked about that earlier in the series, is those people that believe in Jesus, those that confess Christ as their king. And so as we conclude this series, it's just the beginning, all right? ECC Off Island is just getting started. I've been here for all of 10 months. I'm still a rookie. I'm in my first year still. A lot of you are new to the church. And so we're just getting started, but this is a, a good foundational series that we're going to close with a very well-known story. We've all heard it. It's in Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to read the story. 
out of Luke 15. It's a little lengthy. It's 21 verses. Hang in there with me. I want to read the entire story, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I met celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, many of you that have grown up in church have read this or heard this or have heard it preached on many times. And I'm pretty confident that at least one of you, if not more, if I were to guess, thought to yourself, eh, I've already heard that preached before. I already know this one. I already know what he's going to say because, well, I've heard it's in the Bible and I've heard this many times. And and so I can just kind of mentally check out because I already know this story. And maybe you do. And maybe you're right. Maybe I'll say nothing you haven't heard before. I don't know. But what I will ask, 
and this is for all of us, is to approach the Bible, approach God's word with an expectancy, expecting to hear from God. Because maybe, just maybe, God has something fresh to speak to you from a story that you've heard many times before. Now, this story is known as what? The parable of what? The prodigal son, right? Everyone knows. I mean, it's funny, even the title, you know, which isn't inspired, but even the title would say the prodigal son. So it's, it's, it's nomenclature. It's known. That's what it's called, the prodigal son. But I don't want to be contrary, but I don't like that title. Actually, I don't like it one bit. It's a terrible title. Why do I say that? Because read verse 11 where Jesus, this is his story, how he begins it. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And so Jesus is basically giving us the title of his first sentence. And there were two sons. And so why people tend to focus on the prodigal son makes little sense to me when the storyteller himself says he had two sons. And the story is not just about the one, it's about both sons. But really, it's more than even both sons. The story is about the father. And even beyond that, the father and his two sons and their relationship is a picture of the gospel. What you see in this amazing, remarkable story is the gospel itself. And so that's why I'm calling this two lost sons. It's a parable of the gospel. And so let's look at this story again with fresh eyes and let's see the gospel in this story by going through God, man, Christ, response. The four keywords describe the gospel. Let's, let's find those in this story. And then more importantly, let's see how it applies to us today. So the first one, God. What we see here in the gospel is the Father's heart. And you see it in verse 12. I'll read the first part of it. And the younger of the brothers, younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, if we don't know the original first century context, that doesn't sound that crazy. It doesn't sound that unreasonable. I mean, after all, he was going to inherit. He was an heir to the family wealth. And so it was pretty understood that the son would eventually inherit the father's wealth. So what's the big deal? Why does it matter so much that this son asks? What's the significance of it? Well, any first century Jewish man or woman listening to this story would have known exactly what this means. This is important to understand. Whenever the father died in any typical clan, patriarchal, like it was their tribal environment, when the father would die, they would divide the property, the wealth, the estate to the sons. Now, the firstborn son would get a double portion that the other sons would get. Sorry, ladies, they didn't get anything. It's just the men that would receive the inheritance. Women would marry and live on the land, but it was owned by the patriarch, by the father. And so whenever the father died, he was divided. So in this case, there were two sons, so two heirs. And so because the oldest son gets a double portion, it would have been two-thirds of the land, of the property, of the estate, for the older son, and one-third would have gone to the younger son. So the younger son knew that the day would come when he would receive one-third of everything that the father owned. But see, here's the key. When would you receive that? After your father died. That would be your inheritance. And so what is this younger son saying 
to his father. I don't want it after you die. I want what's coming to me now. This request was a deep, deep, shameful sign of disrespect. He wanted his inheritance right then and there, which essentially he was saying is, Dad, Father, I don't really care if you're alive or you're dead. I'd rather you be dead so that I can get the money. And so this request was essentially saying, I'd rather you be dead, is what he was saying in no uncertain terms. He was basically saying, Father, I don't really want you. I want your stuff. I want your money. I want the property. I want the wealth. I have no interest in you. And so he was tired of the relationship. He was playing the game. He was waiting around for his dad to die. His dad wasn't dying, and he was tired of his father. He was tired of the relationship. He wanted out. He wanted it to be finished, and he wanted the money. That's what he wanted. And so he saw his father as the means to an end. The end was getting wealth, and the father's relationship was simply a way to get to what he really wanted, which was the money. And so you see a worn-out, weary son who really doesn't love his father. He doesn't respect his father. He doesn't care about his father. All he really wants is the money. And he wants no relationship with his dad. Give me what's mine now, he says. Now, that would have been absolutely shocking for anyone to hear in the first century. Yet, the father's response is even more shocking if you read the second half of verse 12, what does he say to him? And he divided his property between them. Such a short little phrase. And he gave in to his shameful, wicked, rebellious son. He divided the property. Now, here's the thing. Jesus could have used the word for more liquid cash assets, money, if you will. But he didn't. He used the word property. He talked about real estate. And so he's telling us something, that this particular father's wealth was not in liquid cash form. It was tied up in property, in land. And the more land you had, the more status, the more honor you had in this, in this cultural context. And so when it says that he divided it and he gave it to his son, what Jesus is saying here is he sold one-third of all his assets. He sold one-third of his property. He sold part of the estate. He now had diminished his wealth by one-third. He lost significant wealth by selling it off to give it to the son. But if that wasn't bad enough, he shamed himself. And he shamed the family because what patriarch? Now remember this is a Middle Eastern context. And you know what? Maybe it was 20 centuries ago, but it's not that different from today in the Middle East, where the patriarch is highly respected, and the patriarch is deferred to, and the patriarch will beat his son if he needs to without thinking twice about it. And so for the son to disrespect the patriarch of the clan, and, and then for the father to give in and to sell the land, to shame himself, to lose status in society's eyes was deeply disrespectful. But he did it. 
and he gave it to his son. Now, anyone listening to this in the first century, a traditional first century you know, Middle Easterner, would have thought, that's ridiculous. The only thing that that son deserved was to be driven out of the family. And a real father would have taken a big stick and would have driven that son out of the family to get out of here. Who do you think you are? I'm the patriarch. You honor me. Get out of here. You're no longer my son. I disown you. You're evil and rebellious. And get out would have been the only appropriate expected response from any first century Middle Eastern man. But he doesn't do that. He experiences the pain of the rejection of his love because the father loves his son. And the son doesn't love the father. And so he's experiencing pain and rejection and shame and loss of value of his property. I mean, he's paying a high price here. And most of us, when our love is rejected, we get angry and we lash out. And, and we, don't, we can't stand having our love rejected, yet the father here endures the agony. He takes it. This is important. This is the sign of the gospel here, beginning with the first word, God. This is showing us the heart of God. God is the ultimate patriarch. He is the ultimate father. He is the ultimate sovereign who deserves honor and glory. And yet, he loves sinful, selfish, rebellious, messed up children. That's the first one, God. And so that's what we see. Number two, man. Selfishness on display. And so God, we see his heart. Number two, man, God, man. Man, we also see the heart of man, which is at its core quite selfish. And so this story shows the son as being corrupted by sin, as being rebellious and deeply flawed, as, as being quite evil. And so if we're really honest, that is our heart. And we see this played out. And most people don't want to admit that. Well, no, I'm a good person. Well, this story shows us that really we're not that good, that we need a Savior because left to ourselves, we're very selfish. And this story shows that there's two primary ways that human beings live out their selfishness. And so here's the starting point. All of us are selfish. There's no doubting that. The question is how do you and I tend to apply and live out, what does it look like for you and for me? It might look different for us, but at its root, we're all still selfish. And there's two primary ways, evidenced by two sons. The first one, the first, the younger son, his way of living out selfishness is license. And so he, he is selfish, and you see that with the license to sin freely, with no accountability, because you see that in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He squandered his assets. He squandered everything in what? Reckless living, it says. Very destructive self-centeredness. And it's easy to identify this. You know, the guys that are really partying, alcohol abuse or drug abuse or sexual morality. And so it's not hard to identify that person, like the younger son, who is living recklessly and he feels like he has 
a, a license to go and sin with no accountability and no need for holiness. And, and just basically the words are reckless. It's not easy to, or it's not hard rather to see that. But the thing is, we must be honest with ourselves. Maybe no one in this room has a reckless lifestyle like younger brother has. But many of us can still have that little secret pet sin that we really do harbor, that we really do find joy in, that we do delight in, that we turn to for comfort. We, we can all fall into that, into thinking that we have the freedom or the right to do whatever we want to do, even if we know that it's wrong or not good for us. But we want to have that license, and we don't want to be accountable to a holy God, or in this case, to his Father. And so we want to be in control and dictate what we do and how we do it. Now, we see here the ultimate example of what happened to this younger son because of his license with no accountability, just sin and just do whatever he wants, no free, I mean, complete freedom, no accountability to God. And so what happens? It's a shipwreck. His life is basically destroyed. He's poor. He's alone. He's feeding pigs. Now, this is a Jewish guy. How do you think a Jewish man felt feeding pigs? Pigs were unclean. He would never touch a pig normally. But here he is feeding pigs and eating their very same slop that the pigs are eating. This just shows how low he had reached. He had reached proverbial, you know, he hit the bottom. You know, always say, first you got to hit bottom before you come up. Well, he hit bottom. I mean, this was as low as you could possibly be for a guy who was raised in wealth and in a traditional home, and now he's feeding pigs. This is awful. But this shows what happens to us when we live in uncontrolled, reckless sin. Our lives always get destroyed. It, it never ends well. And so I think if we would take time and just think, what are the implications of this decision? What will my life look like if I, if I do this or if I decide to do that? If we would stop and think and pray and evaluate so often, we would avoid hitting that proverbial rock bottom, being, you know, in the pigsty. And so the first way that people tend to live out their selfish desires is license. He wanted what he wanted, and he used his freedom to get there. But you know what? Not everyone does it like the younger brother. Many of us in this room aren't like that because we're raised in church and we have more morals. But you know what? Many of us can tend to be more like the older brother. At its root, it's the same sin. It just looks different. Let's read about the older brother. Because when he hears a party, he doesn't want to go in. Verses 28 through 30. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and treated him. But he answered to his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son not my brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. All right, there's two primary ways that we tend to live out our selfishness. One is license. That's the younger brother. The other one is legalism. That's the older brother. 
he was a legalist. Not, he, he didn't want to go live recklessly. He was a rules keeper. He was motivated by performance. And legalism is how our hearts tend to define our worth by our abilities to look good or our abilities to perform well. And so legalism is saying, I find my worth, I find my value in what I do. Even if we try to do good things, we want to impress God, impress other people, and show how good we are and how much we've accomplished. And so people that are, tend to be legalistic find their self-worth in how well they perform. You see, this older brother was a classic legalist. He had been slaving for his father all these years. He has performed so well. And yet, the father had the audacity to not do what the older brother wanted. Old brother couldn't believe it. He's like, hey, I want to dictate what you do, father. I've been following all of your rules. I followed everything you wanted me to do. I've always obeyed you. And so now I get to call the shots. I get to be in control. You see, here's the thing. We're all selfish, period. Some of us lean towards the younger brother, and some lean towards the older brother. See, the older brother was basically saying, God, I have followed all your rules. I go to church. I pray. I give to the offering. I go to home group. I'm doing all of these good things. I don't do any of the really bad things. I, do, I try to do everything right. And so then we think that because we're doing everything right, God somehow owes us. We think, God, I followed your rules. Now you owe me. Now you do what I want. And when we really content to think this way, and then things don't go our way, and we go crazy, saying, God, I'm doing, I'm slaving for you. I'm doing all of this for you. I followed your rules. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? I don't like how this has turned out. I don't like these circumstances. I do all this for you, and yet you're not doing for me what I want. Because you see, at its root, the older brother wanted the wealth just as much as the younger brother. The younger brother said, give it to me now. He was more bold. I'll, I'll, I'll give him credit. The younger brother was really bold and kind of reckless because what did he want? The money. Older brother, what did he want? The money. He wanted it too. What was his way of getting to it? By following all the rules and then he thought that he could then leverage the father, manipulate, and be able to get what he wants out of it. But at its root, it's still selfish. Neither son loved the father. Neither son enjoyed the father. Neither son cared about the father. They both saw the father as a means to get to the end of their selfish desires. One did it legalism. One did it through license. Sure, personalities were different, but at its root, equally selfish. Do we ever fall into that? Do we, do we ever think that because we're trying to be a good person that God now owes us something and bad things should never happen to us and things should always go our way and the second things don't go our way, we shake our fists at God and say, how dare you not do for me what I want you to do. I do all this for you, as though God owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything. Everything that we have is a good gift. And so what we see here is the younger brother, because of his selfishness and his license, he was in the pigsty. Okay, the older brother, because of legalism, had a calloused heart. 
both equally far from the Father. So God, man, third word is Christ. So we see here that forgiveness has a price. Okay, the younger brother came to his senses, came to himself, and he rehearsed his speech, right? He says, okay, I have a plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm here feeding the pigs. I don't like this anymore. I want to go back home, it says. And so he has this plan where he's going to somehow now earn his way back into the family. He says, I'll go to my father. I'll admit that I was wrong, and I'll have him hire me so I can make some money, and then I can pay back my debt. He had it all figured out. They were her speech, more religion, if you will. I'm going to get enough points talking to my, my neighbors this week, and they're going to Mecca this week, to Saudi Arabia, for the kids' spring break. And they're good people, but they don't know Christ. And their little boy is friends with my son, little Abdul. He's an awesome eight-year-old boy. And he needs to have his head shaved. And he doesn't want to shave his head, but apparently if you shave your head, after going to Mecca, you, you get more points. And so this eight-year-old was like, I don't really want points. I just want my hair. And so he was struggling with, with having to have his head shaved after he goes to Mecca. But my heart broke for him because poor kid, he can't keep his hair. For these points that, quite honestly, how many points would it take to undo your sin? It's not possible. We sin continuously. Everything that we do is selfishly motivated anyway. And so even these desire for points in, in that Muslim system, when it boils down to it, it's still motivated by selfishness. And, and so the problem is that there has to be a payment for forgiveness. God cannot just freely forgive without there being a payment. And you say, well, I don't really understand that. Where is it in the story? Well, follow me, track with me, and we're going to see how forgiveness is costly. God cannot just forgive freely. There must be a payment. And God and his son paid for us to be forgiven. The son comes back. See, he, he thought he could get an appointment and earn his way back into the father's good graces, be part of the family again. And as soon as he gets there, he starts his speech. He practiced the whole way home. Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. And the father ignores him. The father says, okay, whatever. He ignores his speech. And he says, bring a robe, the best robe, which would have been his because he's a patriarch. He said, bring my robe, the main one, and put it on my son. And put sandals on his feet. And bring the family's signet ring, the ring that represents the family, ruling, authority and put it on his hand, signifying that he is restored back into the family. He is my son, and he hugs him, and he kisses him. He embraces this rebellious, annoying, evil little boy that's now a young man that has broken his heart and shamed him. And the father shames himself further, and he, he pulls his, his clothes up and exposes his legs, which you don't do if you're a patriarch. And he runs. Patriarchs don't run. Have you ever seen anyone here that's wealthy running? No. They walk slowly. Even if you're trying to drive, they walk slowly in front of you and don't care. They're never in a rush unless they're driving and then they'll run you over. But other than that, patriarchs don't run. 
It's shameful to expose your legs, and yet this patriarch doesn't care. He's already been shamed so much by this, this sinful boy, and he doesn't care. His affections are set on his son. His son is the object of his affections, and he doesn't care what it costs him. He runs, and he hugs him, and he holds him, and, and he says, you're my son. You were dead, but you're alive. You were lost, and now you're found. And he says, we need to celebrate, and he throws a party. More expense. He doesn't care about the expense. But don't forget something. Earlier in the story, the father sold one-third of all his property. The son is back. He's restored. He's wearing the ring that shows that he's an heir again. And so now when the father dies, this son will inherit one-third of the property. But here's the thing. The property is now smaller because it was sold off earlier. And now there's less to divide. The father had to pay a price to receive the son back into the family. The estate has been diminished. The father had to pay a price in order to restore his lost son back into the family. He had to pay the price of being shamed in the community and pay the price of losing the wealth. Because now that ring symbolizes something very important. He will be an heir. Now you're thinking, that's not very fair. He already got his inheritance. He already squandered his inheritance. Why is he going to inherit more money after the father dies? Well, by the way, here's the thing. The older son also had to pay a price. You're thinking, well, I don't really understand that. Well, look, we've heard the story for a long time. Many of us have. And as have I. I grew up in church. Father's a pastor. A couple years ago, I was reading a book that talked about this, and my eyes were opened, and it really gripped me, and it helped me better understand this story. You see, there was a price to pay for the father. But the older son had to pay a price too. And that's why he was so angry. Because not the son is back, he's restored. And now when the father dies and is divided three ways, the older son is going to have a smaller inheritance. The older brother had to also pay a price for the father to restore the son back into the family. A smaller inheritance for the older brother. And the older brother did not want to pay the price for the son to be restored. He's like, how, how dare you? How dare you? He stole our money. And he shamed us. He's devoured, he says, our property. Now I'm going to get less. And it's all his fault. He's a sinner. He's the one that was reckless. He's out with prostitutes. And now you let him come back into the family, put a ring on him, and he's an heir again. Now I'm going to get less money. I don't want to pay that price. And we think, well, you know what? Old brother has a point. It doesn't make any sense. It's not fair. Why would there have to be a price paid for the son to be forgiven and restored? There's always a price to pay to forgive. always a price. If someone hurts you, if you're married and, and your wife cheats on you, or husband, pick one, your spouse cheats on you, and they repent, and you forgive them, 
and you restore and you reconcile, does that change the pain that you went through? No, it doesn't. You still paid the price of experiencing that pain and rejection and disappointment and shame. You had to endure that. And then because of the relationship, you extend grace and forgiveness and restoration. But that doesn't take away the fact that you still had to pay the price of the pain to then restore. Whenever we sin, there's always a price to pay. Sin has consequences. There's always a price. Always. The son's rebellion and recklessness and selfishness cost the father dearly, and it cost the older brother. But here's the thing. The older brother didn't want to pay. This is the point of the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate older brother. But unlike in the story, Jesus is the older brother who left home, left heaven, and went into the faraway country to restore the brother. He went and said, hey, brother, what are you doing in your sin? Let's go home. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus left home to the far country, earth, and we're the younger brothers. And the ultimate older brother came and said, I'm going to bring you home. And that's what Jesus did. And then he says, and I'm going to have to pay the price. And Jesus said, as older brother, I want to pay the price so you can be restored. I'll pay the price for your forgiveness. I'll die on the cross for you. I'll pay for your sins. I'll pay it all. Come home. That's the gospel. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And because of our fault, the father had a great cost to pay. The older brother, Jesus, had a great cost that he had to pay for us to be forgiven and restored into the family of God. I'm thankful that our ultimate older brother was nothing like the older brother in this story. God, man, Christ. Fourth key word is response. What does this story show us about the response, which is a call to truly love the Father? That's the response. You see, the younger son was transformed. He experienced his grace. He saw the cost overwhelmed by the price that was paid for him, and it was his fault, he realized that. And the younger son was restored back into the family. And so you could say that the son was transformed by the gospel itself. But what about the older brother, the self-righteous, legalistic older brother? Well, he would not go into the party. And so there's the feast. The father is enjoying his son in the feast, but there's the other brother who's outside the feast, casting his vote of no confidence in his father with his absence, saying, I don't agree with my father. I don't agree with the price that was paid. He's a sinner that my younger brother, his son, not my brother, his son, and I am not going to go into the party. And so now the father, who is the host, who is the patriarch, has to shame himself yet again. And he has to walk out of his party, which is shameful. Like, do you, do you, do you see this trend? Of these two lost sons keep causing the father pain and agony and shame. There he is again, shaming himself out. Okay, son, come back in with me. And so you see the father, what does he want? 
The only thing he wants is his sons close to him. The only thing that he wants is a relationship. The only thing God wants is you. He wants to be glorified when we're close to him. And, the, and this father in the story over and over and over endures pain and suffering and shame at the hands of his two lost sons. But you see, here's the thing. The father says, come in. Come enjoy me and our celebration. And all the son says, no. The story ends. The story ends with the response still kind of hanging there. We don't really know if the older son repented and believed. We don't know if he came back into the feast to enjoy the father. We don't know if he repented of his self-righteousness. What's interesting to me is that the reckless, licensed younger brother is restored, and the appearing to be good person, ruled following, if you want to say more religious, self-righteous legalist, is outside of the father's presence at the end of the story. I think that means something for those of us that are part of the faith family, that we examine ourselves and say, why am I here? Am I here simply because I believe that I can do enough good and then God owes me something? Or am I truly repentant and say, Jesus, if not for you, I'd have no hope? Are we really grateful for the cross? Has it really completely gripped us and changed us? Are we proud of our good deeds? The father's pursuing his lost sons. The only thing he wants is to delight in him. What do we delight in? Do we delight in what, what the father offers us? Both of these sons saw him as a means to the end of their own selfish end, but the question is, do we love the giver or the gifts more? Do we delight in Jesus or in what Jesus can do for us and what we can get from him? The more that we submit to God, the more that we are truly living lives that are gospel-centered, that are focused on his word, where we're delighting in him and he is the source of our satisfaction, he is the source of our joy, the more that happens, the more you're going to enjoy his presence and the more that you're going to delight in him and not in things that this world has to offer. You know, I love how the story ends. It ends with the son coming home and the father calling to the other son, come home with me, come enjoy me. And is it not interesting that the last scene in the story is a feast? Because that's what you see in Revelation as well. When all of us go home, and Abu Dhabi, we're not, we're not really home. None of us are really home, and we all understand homesickness living here. And so we have a home. We have a true home that's waiting for us, and we'll delight and we'll enjoy the Father for eternity because of the gospel has made it possible. And so my question is, as we close this morning, is do you find yourself somewhat lost this morning? Are you wondering, man, I'm, I'm like either one of those two sons and I, I can't find my way back home. Well, yes, you can. The response is faith and repentance. If you are a believer in Christ already, then maybe you need to repent of wanting things from God more than God himself. But maybe if you're here and you're not a believer, maybe for the first time you've realized that for you to be forgiven really does require a price. There is 
a cost. And Jesus paid it all on the cross. And he offers us, quite honestly, himself. There's nothing better than that. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this powerful story that gives us a glimpse into your heart, a glimpse into our own hearts, and shows the beauty and majesty of just who you are. And you are our Father, but you're also our Redeemer. So we thank you, Jesus, for being our ultimate older brother who was more than willing to pay the price, whatever it took, for us to be forgiven and to be restored back into your family. I thank you, Father, for everyone here in this room, and I pray if there's anyone here right now that is grappling with whether or not they should repent and believe in you or not, I pray that you would give them courage and that they would respond to your gospel with faith and repentance. May, may we be a people that delight in you and nothing else. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.